0: As we begin, Father, thank you so much for this uh, new day. Thank you for the opportunity just to open your word and really allow it to nourish our souls, to learn from it, to learn more about you, and to just uh, get an incredible picture of uh, your plan of the ages and how much you love us and how you redeemed us and how someday you'll redeem this whole sin-stricken planet. And so, Lord, we uh, commit this time to you now and we say, come, Lord Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. 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 All right. Well, this is uh, our forty-seventh uh, session in this series. What lies ahead? So we've been doing it for well over a year now, and I've kind of we're getting close to the end, and so I'm kind of looking ahead and kind of sketching out how um, how many more of these I we we want to have as we cover the material, and we're probably going to end up somewhere around fifty, maybe a little more, as we finish up talking about. Uh, Things like the kingdom, uh, the millennial phase of the kingdom, what life will be like then, the eternal state, uh, some of those things. And then I'll probably allow at least one week for just open-ended questions, just kind of let's review, let's refresh, let's talk about everything that we've discussed uh, over the last uh, more than a year now related to the rapture and everything that follows that. Uh, But for today, we're going to continue our study of the second coming, and the Kingdom. A couple of quick uh, reminders. Uh, The book that is kind of the basis for this study, there are some on the back table, or you can uh, go to notbyworks.org and click on the store and pick one up online. Uh, You can get my books, by the way, on Amazon, but I don't really recommend giving your money to Amazon, right? Give it to... Give it to some more worthy cause. You know, that's a gospel-centered ministry. So, But uh, we have an online store where you can get all of our books and, and, and resources. Uh, the Tuesday podcast this week was, speaking of the rapture, Why You Don't Want to Be Left Behind at the Rapture. That was on the Christian Underground News Network, which uh, we're privileged to be a part of every Tuesday. They're standing Tuesday, a guest. So if you have not yet listened to that, I encourage you to go back and check that out. And then hot off the press this Friday, just Friday, Uh, I was on uh, Stand Up for the Truth with David Fiorazzo. Of course, we're uh, familiar with David Fiorazzo here at Plum Creek because he's been here to speak and he did some uh, interviews here. Uh, But that was a really power-packed hour. Uh, uh, The subject was Godless Agenda, Government Control of Public Education. So I really encourage you to check that out. That's a podcast only, of course. It's radio, uh, but it's available at notbyworks.org. Our Wednesday study has been going really well, except we keep getting uh, hammered with snow. So we end up having to do it live stream only. And uh, looking like once again this week, there's some potential for a snowstorm midweek. Uh, so watch your emails. Uh, well, if you're not already subscribed uh, to the Plum Creek Chapel newsletter, uh, please do so. If you're uh, not a part of Cl- Plum Creek Chapel, but you watch that uh, through Not by Works, make sure you're fam- signed up for the Not by Works newsletter. And we will let you know if it's going to be live stream or in person. Um, But hopefully we'll be able to meet in person. Looking forward to kind of having some good discussion uh, this Wednesday. But snow, wind, rain, shine, whatever, we will have the the live stream. Hopefully we will also be able to have the in-person meeting Wednesday night. Uh, So this is our fifth week talking about the second coming in the kingdom. So in our end times chart, we're focused in on the yellow section uh, here. And uh, this morning, we, we, we finished up with seven reasons for the second coming over the last couple of weeks. And this morning, what I want to do is talk about some key passages that relate uh, to the second coming. So for the, at least for the first part of our uh, time this morning, uh, we're going to not have a lot of visuals on the screen. I just want to turn your attention to the text. And these were very long passages, and so rather than put them all on slides, we'll just look at our Bibles together. But the number one passage that should be in everybody's mind and on everybody's list when it comes to the second coming is, of course, Revelation chapter 19. Now, the Bible uh, tells a story from Genesis to Revelation. It's an unfolding of God's uh, plan of the ages that starts with creation, moves to the fall, and then to redemption, and all of God's plans. And purposes in between. Uh, right now, as we've talked about, we're living in the present church age, which is called in Scripture the last days, but we are, we really believe, on the cusp of the rapture. Now, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. It is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time, but as we see the stage being set, it sure seems like. Uh, it can't be much longer. So we should always be ready. Every generation should be ready and looking up and uh, awaiting that blessed hope. Uh, But boy, in this cosmic battle between Satan and his co-conspirators, demons, and human Luciferians versus God, the creator of the universe, things are really heating up. And we're seeing uh, a number of indications that the stage is being set for uh, the second coming and the kingdom and the tribulation and all of these things that will happen during that time and if the stage is in fact being set for those things that necessarily means the rapture must be uh, even closer so as we think about uh, the end times through for example the book of Revelation you get to chapter 19 and that's the second coming you see it there kind of at the top of the the screen uh, partly highlighted in yellow there right there at the end of the seven year tribulation Christ comes back. Uh, The inauguration of the kingdom, the official commencement of that thousand-year millennium, does not happen immediately, as you can tell from this uh, diagram, because according to Daniel 12, there's a 75-day interval between the actual return of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon when he comes back on the Mount of Olives and the start or the the commencement, the kickoff party, if you will, of that thousand-year kingdom. And uh, best we can tell, though Daniel doesn't tell us, it seems as though that 75-day interval is necessary for Christ to accomplish the necessary judgments on earth that we've talked about uh, previously, like the sheep and the goats judgment and, uh, and some of the other cleaning up from all of the battles and things like that. Uh, but at some point, uh, the kingdom is going to start. But it all begins with the return of Christ And we read about that at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible. After you get through chapter 19, the only thing left is descriptions of final judgments, the recreation of the heavens and the earth and sinless perfection, the destruction of the old earth under the curse of sin. So we're really getting close to the end of God's plan of the ages. And this is a a powerful passage that I've often said I think believers need to read regularly uh, because it just fills you with awe It fills you with wonder and hope, and it ought ought to, uh, you know, fill you with uh, reverence. Uh, And if you don't know the Lord, if you're not a believer today, then it ought to fill fill you with terror. Because as we're going to see in a moment, the second coming is all about judgment. And the Bible paints a picture, and the prophets of old uh, predicted that Christ would come both as the suffering servant... Sacrificial lamb, the one who would be wounded for our transgressions, or as John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, he would come born of a, of a virgin in a lowly manger, um, very unassuming beginnings, even though uh, to some, like the angels, we're going to actually look at that passage in Luke 2 as part of our worship hour this morning. Uh, it was a, a climactic moment and a moment of praise and, and the angels singing and so forth, but Worldwide, it was kind of understated, to say the least, wasn't it? Um, But it won't be understated the second time. And the prophets uh, foretell of a time when Christ comes back uh, the second time. uh, And this is uh, John's description of it, as revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, of that moment. And it'll be something that all, as we shall see in a moment, Jesus himself said this, that all the world will look upon him. Uh, It's one thing for a few shepherds out on a hill or maybe some magi sometime after that uh, to see the Christ child but this occasion that we're talking about this morning will be one of global uh, awareness and significance so let's pick it up in verse 11 now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse now from a literary perspective uh, and you know the Bible is obviously literature it was it was a written document and it uh, is uh, written in normal uh, rules and grammar and syntax that's characteristic of literature. From a literary perspective, the book of Revelation is bookended by references to a white horse. So if you go back to our kind of overview of Revelation that you see on the screen here, um, the first three chapters all deal with the church, letters to the churches. Chapters 4 and 5 set the stage for God's wrath that's about to be poured out on the earth. Chapters 6 to 18 are the outpouring of the wrath of God and that prophetic great day of the Lord's wrath. Remember, day doesn't mean a 24-hour period in prophecy. It means a time. And depending on the context, it could mean an exact moment of some judgment, or in, in many cases it refers to the entire Uh, end times plan Uh, and often when especially when it's talking about the day of the lord's wrath or the great day of the lord's wrath it's referring to this seven-year period Um, and so at the beginning of the seven-year period chapter 6 verse 1 you see the mention of a white horse and then you see all these things unfolding we've talked about a lot of it over the last several months you know the seal trumpet and bowl judgments the um, 144,000 missionaries, the two witnesses, the, uh, Babylon, and its, destru- its rise and fall, ultimately its destruction. We've talked about the Antichrist, the beast, uh, and the false prophet. Uh, it, but uh, after all of that, when it kind of comes to this climactic event, you see John speaking of another white horse. And So the contrast here is between the Antichrist, who's the first rider on a white horse, and he's the imposter coming to make war and then christ who's the real deal and that's the reason as we see as we read on so back to verse 11 in john uh, 19 now i saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true so that's a direct contrast to the fake christ the anti-christ Remember, the word antichrist, I think it's only used five times. I can't remember. I should know because I've been putting the finishing touches on our Spirit of the Antichrist book. But uh, it's the Greek word antichristos. And anti can mean uh, false and it can mean against. It has both connotations. And, of course, the Antichrist was both. He was both a false Christ setting himself up as God and demanding that people worship him But he was also, of course, against Christ. He was the embodiment of Satan who has been trying to defeat Christ uh, since he got kicked out of heaven. And uh, so, uh, way back in Genesis chapter 3, God predicted that ultimately the seed of the woman, capital S, that would be Christ, is going to destroy the head of the serpent who Revelation tells us is Satan. And that battle has been ensuing ever since. So, you're very significant. You kind of get a clue just from nothing more than a literary perspective that things are winding down. The 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 you know bookend has appeared. It's going from the imposter on the white horse to the real deal. So he is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Well, remember, I want to get the exact quote, but uh, the, the antichrist. It says uh, he comes. Is actually verse two. Um, And I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So there's still another parallel there in terms of war. But again, the the contrast is this time, Jesus, Revelation 19 tells us, is doing it in righteousness. He makes war. Implication being, unlike the Antichrist, who did it in unrighteousness, selfish, pridefulness, with an agenda, a satanic agenda, uh, to try to defeat God Almighty. So uh, in, in he's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Again, speaking to the holiness, the, the um, uniqueness of, of God the Son, that there's none like Him. Uh, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. So there you see obviously a reference, again going back to the beginning of Revelation chapters 4 and 5, that uh, theodicy that we see here referenced on this chart, which is a justification for God's actions. What gives God the right to judge the world here at the end of the age? Well, The blood of Christ gives him the right. He shed his own blood. He paid the penalty. He purchased our redemption. Uh, Even though we were sinners lost on the road to hell, could do nothing about that, nothing we can do to commend ourselves to a holy God. God took the first step, uh, came to earth, put on human flesh in the form of his son, and lived a perfect, holy sinless life, died to pay the sin penalty for the whole world, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and now is the one who rightly offers eternal life to anyone who will accept it freely by uh, grace through faith. So uh, so we see once again this reference to the atoning work of Christ, just as we did at the beginning of Revelation. So he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Remember, 60 years earlier, uh, uh, John had walked and talked with Christ he'd been with Christ in the upper room he had that intimate relationship with Christ Christ, uh, he was considered one of the inner three, Peter, James and John and then when uh, John under the inspiration of the Spirit wrote his gospel the fourth gospel which stands alone among the gospels because it's not it's not what we call the uh, synoptic gospels like Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's the gospel of belief it has a different angle, a different approach to collecting the events of Christ, and some 90% of what's in John is not included in any of the other Gospels, but it's in John, that his Gospel, that he begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So uh, here, John, the same author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, many years later is referring to this same Jesus as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords, coming back, and his name is the word of God. Now notice verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now those armies, where are they? In heaven. That's us. So this is another indication that the second coming and the rapture are not the same event because, you know, he's coming to earth. We're not on the earth. We're in heaven at this point and were following Him, returning with Him to help rule and reign during the kingdom and perform various functions as uh, Jesus talked about during His earthly ministry. He frequently referenced uh, to the disciples that they would have a role to play in the kingdom. They would sit on various thrones. They would be in charge of various geographic regions, Luke 19. Um, You see uh, the book of Hebrews talk about a co-reigning with Christ in the kingdom. Uh, and depending on the, your faithfulness during this earthly life, uh, you, you will either reign in greater or lesser positions of authority. That's the whole doctrine of rewards, you know, the beam of judgment. Um, now, uh, everybody who knows the Lord and accepted the free gift of eternal life will be in heaven. That's the only one and only condition, faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life on one thing faith alone and Christ alone. But uh, the role that we have to play in the eternity, the eternal state, will be determined by our faithfulness. So we're coming back with him. And notice that they were referred to as armies because we're coming back to meet up outside Jerusalem at that in that region of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon revelation 19 talks about um so uh, we're coming back of course it won't be much of a battle right it'll be like i think i've talked about this before but like one of those heavyweight uh, boxing matches that's highly touted and anticipated and marketed and for weeks people are looking forward to it they pay 99.99 to watch it you know on hbo (laughs) And uh, they gather their friends, they get their popcorn, they gather around the TV. They can't wait to watch this incredible fight. The bell rings, the boxers come out, one of them socks the other one right in the face. He goes down, and he's down for the count, and the whole fight lasted two seconds. And you think, oh, that was the worst $100 I ever spent, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that's the way Battle of Armageddon is going to be. It's going to be with a word. He's going he's to destroy him. So verse 15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. We talked about this in our Wednesday night study about figures of speech. This is obviously a reference to his warfare and bloodshed and, and defeating them because as the prophets of old, uh, for example, Psalm 2, talks about he's going to strike the nations with a rod of iron. In fact, John quotes that here. He, will, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm 2. Uh, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now this is not the picture we get in Bethlehem at the first advent. You don't think of a tiny baby representing the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. But the coming of Messiah was in two phases, just as the return of Messiah will be in two phases. And uh, the first one, was to pay the penalty for sin. This next one is to judge those who didn't receive that payment that was freely offered to them. Uh, He says he has on his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you have a good English translation, you'll notice that that phrase King of Kings and Lord of Lords is in all caps and it's set apart. That's because that's the way it is in the original Greek. And this is just a way to set that apart. You know, I've been working on our my latest book, Spirit of the Antichrist and uh, from all the writing that I've done through the years you, you, I, I know that when you have an extended quote, the general rule of thumb is more than five lines, you have to indent that and set it off you don't want a long quote that's ten or twelve lines just put in quotations because people forget as they're continually reading, is he quoting somebody or is that him talking? So extended quotes, you set them apart and it's just a way to To highlight, and and similarly, the writer here, the Holy Spirit, ultimately wanted to set apart who this is that's coming back. You know, Um, at the first Advent, even though they should have known, it was a little bit unclear. It was unclear until He began His ministry, and the forerunner, John the Baptist, and Jesus Himself both said, "You know, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent." Right, but uh, there was no flashing light or anything that said, "King of Kings," at the in in the manger. But the second time, it's going to be clear. And um, so, uh, then you see the uh, battle of Armageddon and the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. And they're cast alive into the lake of burning with fire and brimstone down in verse 20. And then it goes on into chapter 20 where we see the binding of Satan and uh, the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ in the old earth followed by the continual reign of the Godhead, the triune God, in the uh, new heavens and the new earth. So, by the way, I might mention I had lunch with some people this week and they were talking about how some uh, people interpret the book of Revelation uh, as if uh, it's all about the church. They, They don't see a distinction between Israel and the church. And so each section of Revelation, it's called the, uh, the recapitulation view of Revelation, every couple of chapters, and I have a chart on this, but I don't have it pulled up, um, but it's in the chart book. Each, every two chapters, they say, is just a restatement of the church age. So the seal judgments, that's representing the church age. The bowl judgments, that's the church age. The the trumpet judgments, that's the church age. Um, you know, the, uh, the first three chapters, that's the church age. You get to chapter uh, 20, that's the church age. So they believe, their theology is, that Satan is bound up today in the present age. Now, i got to tell you, if you think Satan's bound up today, I cannot imagine what life would be like if he weren't bound. But, of course, they don't understand the literal, grammatical, historical approach to Scripture and the very clear distinction that God's Word paints between Israel and the church. Uh, Satan is by no means bound. Uh, imprisoned today or bound up today. In fact, the Bible says things are getting worse and worse in the present age. It's called the present evil age. I mean, why would you call it an evil age if Satan is largely held in check? Uh, it's called uh, the age where the whole world, 1 John 5:19, is under the sway of the wicked one. Well, how do you reconcile that with him being bound up today? It's just utter nonsense. I mean, it, I hate to be personally... Uh, offensive, but it, it, there's just no way you can read Revelation 20 and think that's today. It's not. It's looking forward to the millennial phase when indeed the king of kings is on the throne. And at that time, yes, Satan will be bound up in prison. Um, and uh, it'll be a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and judgment, as you would expect when Satan's not roaming the earth, right? Remember in Job... Uh, God asked Satan, "Where did you come from?" He said, "From going to and fro on the earth." See, the de- the earth is the devil's playground right now, but someday, uh, Christ is gonna going to fix all that. So, Revelation 19 is is sort of the preeminent passage on uh, the second coming, and as I read through that, I kind of uh, referenced some some of the differences between uh, the rapture and the second coming. But I'd like to. To take a closer look at those before we go and look at uh, some other passages that relate uh, to the second coming. But before I do that, any questions about Revelation 19 or anything else that we've said so far or comments? All right. So let me just make some contrasts, and then I want to move into contrasts between the church and Israel. So obviously... At the rapture, according to, we're going to just compare the two key passages. There are many passages that reference the rapture, and there are many passages that reference the second coming. But as I just said, Revelation 19 is the key passage on the second coming. And of course, 1 Thessalonians 4 is the key passage on the, the uh, rapture. So if you, and if you compare these two passages, which is where these lists come from, I'm not... Uh, you know, make. I'm not doing circular reasoning here where I'm saying the rapture is when Christ comes in the air and I'm just making that up and therefore I'm saying it's not the same coming because of the second coming Christ comes to the earth and I'm making that up. No, these passages demand that. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ comes in the air. And according to Revelation 19, Christ comes all the way to the earth. Now, unless I'm missing something, coming in the air and coming all the way to the earth are not the same thing. So these have to be two separate Events Revelation 14 never talks about Him coming to earth. Everything that takes place, the great reunion, the resurrection, the translation of the saints, the catching up, the harpazo, all of that takes place in the, in the clouds, not on earth. So that's a clear distinction. Uh, at the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, only the saved are in view. you read that whole passage as many times as you want, you'll never find any reference to unbelievers or the unsaved. At the second coming, of course, uh, the unsaved are very much in view, and Christ is coming to execute judgment on them. And if you compare other second coming passages, like in the Olivet Discourse, you see explicitly both believers and unbelievers mentioned, the sheep and the goats, all right? Or in the Old Testament, references to Christ's second coming include references to Jews that are believers and Jews that are unbelievers that will be judged. So, again, another clear distinction. At the rapture, you've got the dead being raised to life. Now, we talked about this for quite some time, the resurrection of the body and how important that is. But believers in the present age who have died, their soul is in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep. You never lose consciousness. Uh, when you die, you go immediately be in the presence of the Lord. Uh, that's why the verse I quoted in a prayer alert this week in Psalm, I think it's 116, says, uh, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Because you're with Him, you know, physically. Um, but at the rapture, what happens is the physical bodies of those believers who have died is going to be reconstituted, either raised out from the grave or, you know, reconstituted from having been burned up, wherever the physical atoms of our flesh and bone are by that time of the rapture, if we're dead and if we're believers, will be reconstituted and raised to life. Okay? At the second coming, it's just the opposite. The, the living are sent to death. Jesus says, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's complete opposite. So once again, these cannot be the same event. Uh, According to 1 Thessalonians 4, we go from earth to heaven at the rapture. We're caught up. Not caught down, (laughs) caught up. According to Revelation 19, which we just read, at the second coming, believers are coming down with Christ, following him uh, to earth from heaven. Remember what we said, where, where are those armies? They're in heaven, and they're riding with him, following him, coming back. So a complete switch. So, I mean, just even a basic reading without doing a lot of theological cross-referencing leads you to the unmistakable conclusion that 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 19 are not talking about the same event. Can't possibly be. Um, and then, again, as you compare Scripture to Scripture, we see, uh, as we broaden our, our focus, several more distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, immediately after... Uh, the rapture is the tribulation. okay? So you see uh, for example, Paul talking about this in 1 Thessalonians that God has not appointed the church to suffer the prophetic wrath of God, uh, so He's going to rescue us before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And then comes the rap- then comes the tribulation. So if you go back to um, this chart here, you see the rapture over here. And then uh, following that, not necessarily immediately, I thought I changed that slide, uh, but you see after the rapture is the tribulation period after some length of time. We don't know how long that preparation period is. It could be a few days. It could be a few months. Some people think it could be a few years. I tend to think it's a few months. But the point is the rapture is followed by uh, the second coming. Uh, the second coming, on the other hand, is not followed by the, the rapture is followed by the tribulation that, that's what i meant i don't know what i said but i'm saying it right now well, the, the, the rapture is followed by the tribulation the second coming on the other hand is followed by the millennium i mean Re, chapter 20 of revelation comes after chapter 19 it's pretty pretty clear um, as i said the rapture is imminent meaning it could happen at any time there are no prophecies that have to come before it there are no fulfillment uh, prophecies have to be fulfilled before the rapture uh, whereas the second coming there are numerous signs and specific things that happen before we've just been studying about that for many weeks now for example the seal, trumpet and bowl judgments all take place before the second coming I mean this chart represents some of those things but you know, you've got the unveiling of the Antichrist you've got the abomination of desolation you've got uh, which Jesus by the way Reminds us is the biggest sign that his return is about to happen. And he tells that future nation of Israel that when you see that happen, this is Revelation 24 15, head for the hills. It's, it's coming soon. Within three and a half years, he's coming back. So there are tons of signs that the Bible and Jesus himself explicitly give to predict when the second comings going to happen. There are no such signs as it relates to the rapture. It's imminent. The rapture is a mystery. Remember, a mystery is a uh, is information that is previously unrevealed in the Old Testament but is revealed now in the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to the rapture as a mystery. Right? And so, I mean he's now revealing it. We don't find any reference to the rapture uh, in Uh, the Old Testament. Second coming, of course, is predicted in many places in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at some of those. And then, uh, as we've kind of said, just to restate it a different way, the purpose of the rapture is to rescue before the great and terrible day of the Lord. But the purpose of the second coming is to judge. Completely different. That's why every time... Well, and here I say it, the rapture is a message of comfort. Every time you see references to the rapture, you see the idea of comfort, encouragement, exhortation. You never sense the idea of a warning. For example, if you look at 1 Thessalonians four eighteen, it says, uh, therefore, comfort one another with these words, right at the end of his discussion of the rapture. Or 1 Corinthians 15, at the end, he, he says, uh, he, he ends his discussion of the rapture with a uh, note of praise. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, knowing that your work in the Lord and that your labor is not in vain. I mean, that's a word of encouragement, not look out, head for the hills, judgment is coming, the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. Uh, in Titus 2.13, you re- see the rapture referred to as the blessed hope. Well, I don't know how you can read the passage we just read in Revelation 19 and and come away with a message of hope. I mean, if you see the big picture and you understand that God is ma- making going to be making all things new and this is the next step in that process, then yeah, for us, it's because it's fulfilled prophecy in general, it's, it's hope. But it's certainly not a message in and of itself of hope. It's a message of terror and warning. Uh, So those are some contrasts uh, between the rapture and the second coming. Any questions or comments about that? Yeah. So what is the purpose of some denominations or whoever making these two seem like one incident? What's the the why behind the false doctrine? That's a great question. So the question is, what's the purpose of some denominations and, and Bible teachers making these two events one, right. right? Thinking that they're the same thing. Um, what's the why, right? Well, I don't know that they're coming at it from that perspective of, you know, this is a, you know, let's make these two events one or let's teach that they're the same event for some purpose. They've just been uh, led astray by, frankly, a thousand years of Kingdom Now theology that teaches that the church has been replaced has replaced Israel. So it's replacement theology. And this is what uh, the Roman Catholic Church taught, and people adopted it, and it was just kind of the view, prevailing view of the day that the church is the new Israel. There's not going to be a literal earthly kingdom for Israel because those promises were abrogated. They were When Israel rejected the Messiah, God said, then forget it. That's why last week we spent so much time talking about, you know, the unconditional uh, covenant promise. Remember how we, we made a big deal about Abrahamic covenant in Scripture is simply an I will statement. There's no if attached. God's going to do this. It's a guarantee. And then he reiterates it through the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, also unconditional. And, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So either God's a liar which is not possible, and Hebrews talks about that, God who cannot lie, or He's changed His mind. He's also immutable. He can't change. It's a, you know, we, we can take it to the bank. So they're misunderstanding the nature of the promise, and they're misunderstanding the relationship between the church and Israel, which if we have time in a moment, I'll, I'll get to some of those clear distinctions in Scripture. But if you think that God's done with Israel, Just think about how many of these prophecies are Jewish in nature. Um, Let's put up the Daniel prophecy here. Um, Everything in blue relates to Daniel's prophecy for Israel, Daniel 9, for my people and my holy city. That's Israel. So uh, we know that the first 483 uh, years of that prophecy have been fulfilled, but this chart would look a lot different if you think that God abandon Israel, forsook his promises, and says, I'm not gonna give you the rest of the promises, and instead the church is spiritually going to get to receive the benefits of all these promises. Then then we couldn't have a chart like that. But because they do that, they they take the New Testament and assume that the, that it is teaching that the church has replaced Israel, then all those promises are irrelevant. And so you don't have a need for two uh, returns, right? There's no Because there's only one people, one group. So every time there's a reference in the New Testament to a return of Christ, they, they assume it's the same thing. And that's why I took such great uh, effort here at uh, pointing out the distinguish, distinguishes from the text itself, the differences from the text itself. This isn't a theological argument. It's a let the text speak for itself. But they bring their presupposition to the text, assuming that there is no Israel, the church is the new Israel, and therefore the only way you can have the church be the recipient of all of these promises and prophecies that are spelled out in Scripture is to spiritualize them, because we don't have a physical temple, we don't have a physical throne, we don't have a physical you know altar, we don't have boundaries, we're not over there in the Holy Land, so they've got to make them all metaphorical, is the idea. Back here and then up here. So does that? filter down then just of pride and their sense of their works religion that they think that that's what I was wondering well so the question is is, does it come down to pride and their uh, approach to a works based uh, uh, you know doctrine of salvation Um, obviously I think what keeps people holding on to that false doctrine is pride but I think it's bad hermeneutics. That's why what we're studying on Wednesday nights is so foundational. If you come to the Bible and with an allegorical approach, where you can make the text say or mean whatever you want it to mean, you're going to come up with bad conclusions. So again, I'm not suggesting that people who hold this view are bad people or that they don't love the Lord and that and they even in many cases value his word. It's not a it's not a conspiracy per se where they're saying we're going to just deceive the world. They've been deceived and they, they just aren't connecting the dots plainly. And again, if you'd come at the Bible starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation and you read it in its plain, normal, literal sense, what you will come away with, for example, is that when God promised David an eternal son on his throne, that means David's going to get an eternal son on his throne. It doesn't mean that the church is going to have Jesus reigning in our hearts. I mean, that's a big, huge leap that's not listed in the text. You've got to let the text speak for itself. When God promises boundaries for Israel, literal geographic boundaries, I showed you that diagram last week, we we believe that's what that means. Uh, When God describes the temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48, we believe that's a literal temple. There's no reason not to believe that. Uh, Let's go to Jeff and then back over here. So I feel like this, this argument is pretty irrefutable in, in terms of the comparisons of Revelation nineteen to First Thessalonians first Thessalonians four thirteen. If if somebody who was from the opposing view was to say that Revelation nineteen was divided into two sections, a part A and a part B, and First Thessalonians four thirteen was part A of that, what would you what would you say? In other words, we're raptured up what well, we believe but what if they're saying well first we're sucked up into the air to meet him and then we all come down together what would you yeah say? that's what they have to say right. and that's exactly what they say it's called the u-turn right you go up and then you make a u-turn that's what they call it yes yeah, that you go up and then you make a u-turn and come right back down but that's clearly not what the text says so you're you're you know you're connecting verses that have no connection and therefore you're kind of filling in some gaps well if 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 19 are the same thing. Well, then when he talks about meeting in the air, they, they must meet him in the air and then turn around and and come back. And so then they'll, again, a lot of bad interpretation comes from bad cross-referencing, comparing Scripture passages that don't go together, like the one I mentioned when people compared uh, Psalm, I mean uh, Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit coming upon like cloven tongues of fire with Acts 28 or 7 where the, they built the fire on the island of Malta and they say oh that's both the Holy Spirit well it's just ridiculous just because they both have fire doesn't mean it's the same thing uh, just because they both these passages both involve Christ and some kind of return doesn't mean they're the same thing but they'll bring in a passage which has nothing to do with this whatsoever it's not even in the same type of literature uh, but in Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal and they'll say, oh, you know, the, the, the father went out to meet the son, and then they came back together. And so it's not, there's not unprecedented to have this meeting, and then you're so excited that you, you know, you meet meet the Lord. But, I mean, that doesn't even make sense, because in the, in that passage it's talking about uh, how Israel is prideful and thinks they have no need of repentance, and so they're like the older son who said, I've done all this, and you never killed fat fat calf for me, and but the other one comes to himself and says, I am unworthy. And, and that's when, you know, that's how you can be saved. So it has, and then not only that, but the it's a confusion of categories because in the prodigal son, it's God who goes out to meet, you know, it, the father is representing God. In, in their theory of the U-turn, it's us that are going out to meet the Lord and then we come back. So anyway, it's just nothing. They cannot prove it textually. It's a complete theological uh Creation that's not taught in Scripture. Yes? So I'm going to follow up on Brianna's question. So, with like the new apostolic reformation movement or a kingdom nail, are you saying that those people are just like misinformed? So am I saying that there's no nefarious agenda and these people are just victims of years and years of bad theology? Well, I think uh, it, there's no nefarious agenda necessarily in their minds in, in most cases. I mean, obviously there are exceptions. There are shysters out there who know what they're teaching is wrong and they're just doing it for selfish gain. The Bible talks about that. But the average person I, I don't think uh, is part of, in their mind, some nefarious agenda, but is this deception about the, the return of Christ and all things related to end times, is that overarching deception, is that part of a nefarious agenda in the cosmic level? Absolutely. Satan's the great deceiver. The Bible says deception will get worse and worse. And if you if you have no use for end times, because if if this was a, a chart uh, from these uh, preterists or covenant theologians or amillennialists, everything on there would be wiped out because it's all figurative it's all spiritual it's not literal so they ah, oh, you're silly you know seals that's just the church Bulls. that's just the church that's just all metaphorical and so basically their end times chart is a line with a dot at the end and then that dot all the saved go to heaven all the lost go to hell it's over that's it there's not nothing so and satan wants people to believe that he doesn't want people to study this 16 percent of the bible that is unfulfilled prophecy we've talked about that second peter 3 predicts that people will there will come a day in these last days when people have no interest in end times theology. So, I think the it absolutely is part of a nefarious agenda at the macro level, but I, I want to be careful not to suggest that any person who's a replacement theologian is somehow part of the Luciferian conspiracy. You know what I mean, right? They're they're just unfortunately misled and if they would let the Bible speak for itself, I think it would be pretty clear. Yeah. And it also makes God's chosen people the Israelites um, be neglected. I would think that yes. Satan would right. love for people to think that, yeah, he, he wasn't able to get them saved, so they're gone. That's a great point. I mean, it. remember God's, you know, chosen nation, the apple of his eye is Israel, and He and salvation is of the Jews. We're going to see that in a passage we're going to look at in the second hour. And so, by taking this approach and confusing the rapture and the second coming and not, not having an end time, a clear end times plan, you have marginalized Israel. And I think if we read through biblical history, it doesn't bode well for anybody who marginalizes Israel. I mean, God, this is His holy people, His holy land. He loves them, and someday they're going to rise back to a place of worldwide global prominence when the king sits on the throne. So we'll stop there for now, uh, but what I want to kind of look ahead to is some of the purposes for Israel and the purposes for the church. Because if you don't understand the distinction between the church and Israel, you won't understand the distinction between the rapture, which is for the church, and the second coming, which ultimately is about Israel. So, you know, there's an underlying problem here. But once we see what the Bible says about God's plan for each group, I think it helps you understand the big picture a little bit better. So we'll stop there. Uh, Those of you that are live streaming, we should uh, kick the live stream back on for the sermon in the second hour, typically around 1025 to 1035, just depending on how the service flows, but sometime around 1030, give or take five minutes. And for those of you here, feel free to take a break, grab some refreshments and coffee, and we'll come back at 10 o'clock for the start of our service.